So last week, we started a new series entitled The Story, Stranger Things. In 2012-2013, we spent 31 weeks going through something called The Story. It's a book that edits the Bible so it reads more like a novel. It doesn't change the Bible. It uses word-for-word NIV uh, scripture. But if you've never read it, I've in, I encourage you to pick one up. Uh, you can at the information booth for $5. Somebody asked me between services, so are we following along with this in the summer? No, we're not following along with this like we did five years ago. But we're just picking out some of the stranger stories uh, from the story to, to highlight. But it's still, it's a great way to get an overview of the entire Bible in a very easy to read kind of way. So recommend it to you. With the story, there comes three perspectives that the, the story, the book, challenges us to take. And when we talk from up front, from each of those perspectives, uh, we are going to move, change locations up here. And so one perspective is the lower story, which is simply the view of what is happening in the Bible. And when we talk from that perspective, we'll just stand right where I'm standing now. Uh, when we look at the upper story, the view of God's perspective of what is happening in the Bible, we will move up to the upper platform over there and talk about God's perspective. And then there's an our story view, which is a view of how the Bible intersects with the story of our lives. And when we talk about that, we'll move to the lower platform uh, by the chair here. So we'll move around as we change our perspectives on each individual story. But we've entitled this the story Stranger Things. And while we have a very high view of Scripture, we believe it is the Word of God, we also know that there are some strange, weird, and odd stories in the Bible. And what we hope to take away from this series, the story Stranger Things, is that in the biblical story and in our own personal stories, God is at work in the unexpected things of life. In our lives, sometimes we get blindsided. Things happen that we never saw coming or could possibly have imagined. And when that happens, we wonder, is God still with us? And we want this series to remind us that, yes, God is at work even in the unexpected things in our lives. A verse that we want to keep in front of us for this series, memorize it if you haven't already, it's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, which says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, God is different from us. And we all have expectations of how God is supposed to act and how he should be. And when God doesn't act like we think how God should act, well, it's because he's not us. He's different from us. So, of course, there will be times when God seems strange. The Bible is, of course, written in a different time, a different culture. It has different values. And in the bulletin, we've listed the different strange stories that we're going to address during this series. This morning's story is a strange one because Jesus needs two attempts, two tries, to heal a blind man. And it's strange because, like, what, did he have an off day or was he just not concentrating? What, what happened? What, what is it that Jesus needs two attempts to heal somebody. That doesn't make any sense. That's strange. Um, our scripture reader for this morning is Jocelyn Zurenberg. So Jocelyn, if you can make your way on up to the podium. As she does so, I'm going to ask if you are able to please stand and face the center of the room. And we read scripture from the center of the room. 
to remind us where it is to be in our lives, both as individuals and as a community of faith, it is to be central. And so, Jocelyn, whenever you are ready, please read from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus went, sent him home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Jocelyn, thank you very much. You may be seated. This is a strange miracle about restoring sight. It's a strange miracle about restoring sight. Something I want to point out early is that it says the blind man is from Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is a town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And what's important about Bethsaida is that uh, at least three and probably five of Jesus' disciples came from Bethsaida, which is amazing because it was a town of no more than a thousand people in the time of Jesus and probably closer to 400. It was a tiny town. And three, probably five of Jesus' disciples came from this tiny little town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Peter, Andrew, and Philip, the Bible says, were all from there. And it's highly likely that James and John were from Bethsaida also. So five of the disciples are from this area. It's not a big place, so this is speculation on my part, but it's highly likely that these disciples would have known of this blind man. It's a small town. It's where they grew up. Uh, I can't imagine that they weren't familiar with this fellow. Again, that's speculation, but it's highly likely. Now, miracles are kind of strange by nature, right? Again, seeing a lame person walk or a deaf person hear or a blind person who can suddenly see, that's out of the ordinary to begin with. That should go without saying. But even by miracle standards, this one is a strange one. And there are three things in particular that make this a strange miracle. The first and the most obvious is that the first attempt to heal this blind man from Bethsaida, it only half worked. It only kind of worked. Jesus spit on the man's eyes. And it wasn't completely, that's not the only time that Jesus would use his spit to heal someone. So he spits on this man's eyes. He puts his hands on him. And the blind man says in verse 24, he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So it's a miracle. Well, kind of. Is it a miracle? Is it not a miracle? What happened here? What's going on? It's just kind of strange. The second thing that makes it strange is that the blind man never asked. He didn't ask to be healed. Nowhere in the story does the man ask to be healed. Verse 22, it says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Others came on the blind man's behalf which, again, isn't completely out of the ordinary. It does happen in some other miracle stories of Jesus. 
But I just want to pause there and just ask a question there. How does a blind person know they are blind? And, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful in any way, shape, or form. But let's just assume, and put yourself in this person's shoes, let's assume you've been blind since birth. You've never been able to see. How does someone who's been blind since birth know what they are missing? What's their frame of reference? See, the only way someone who's been blind since birth knows that they're blind is that somebody has to tell them. It's like they're blind to their blindness. Somebody has to explain to them. Well, you realize there's a part of life that you're not experiencing. It's called sight. And I don't even know how you begin to explain sight, but that's basically what somebody would have to do. Otherwise, the person would never know. It would just be normal. Now, I just want to use that and pause and just have a quick thought here. How likely is it that all of us are blind to something? Where there's a way that we do life that is not only not helpful, but it's actually hurtful to us. And we're not even aware of what it is we are doing because it's just the way we've always done life. It's highly likely that all of us are blind to something and we don't even know it. There's a third strange thing in this story and that was the request by the people was not to heal. The request was for Jesus to touch the blind man. Now, it's very possible, if not probable, that healing was assumed if Jesus touched him. But in verse 22, again, going back to that verse, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Again, very possible, if not probable, that healing was assumed if Jesus were to touch him. But Jesus physically touches the man three times. And the first time is in verse 23, where it says, He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Took the man by the hand and led him outside the village. The second time that Jesus uh, touched him was, uh, resulted in the man seeing people like trees. We've already gone to that verse. Some vision, but it was still kind of cloudy. And so Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes once more. And the scripture says, then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Even for a miracle story, this is a strange one. But if we look at this story from God's perspective, we'll see that it's a strange example of God's foresight. The story is a strange example of God's foresight. What we have to remember and understand about the Bible is that God inspired the writers of the Gospels to highlight truth. Truth about Jesus, truth about us. Sometimes we, I think, misunderstand and think, well, the people who wrote the scriptures, they just kind of were, you know, putting stories together randomly, haphazardly. 
No, that's not the truth at all. They are put together in such a way so that truth, truth about Jesus, truth about us, is highlighted. Not just in what it says, but in how it structures the stories and how it puts the stories together. You see, the blind man in this story was a picture of the disciples. He was a picture of the disciples. This is not an original thought. Um, got this from Ray Vanderlaan. I believe he's right on about this, though, that the blind man was a picture of the disciples. But in order to appreciate that, like, what do you mean? Where do you get that? You've got to look beyond the story. Again, the story came from uh, four or five verses in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. Well, there's a whole chapter 8. Things that happened before this story and after this story that were not just randomly put together. They were put together to highlight truth. And so I want us to journey through the whole chapter and see God's amazing foresight and how this was a picture of the disciples, this blind man. Mark 8, verses 1 to 10 begins with the feeding of 4,000 people. Now, many of you have heard of the feeding of 5,000 people. That was another time. There was also a time where Jesus feeds 4,000 people. Two different stories, not the same story with different numbers. No, the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospel of Mark occurs in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 8, we read of a second miraculous feeding, the feeding of the 4,000. After Jesus miraculously feeds 4,000, verses 11 to 13 in Mark chapter 8, the Pharisees come, and do you know what they ask for? They ask to see a miraculous sign. He just miraculously fed 4,000 people. And the Pharisees come, and they say, hey, we would like to see a miraculous sign. And I love Jesus' reaction to this. The Bible says, it's one of the few times, it says, Jesus sighed deeply. Ah! Oh, are you kidding me? I just fed 4,000 people. You want to see a miraculous sign? What is wrong with you? He couldn't believe their unbelief. It was incredible. And so in the next two verses, verses 14 and 15, Jesus goes to his disciples and he warns them about this unbelief. And he uses a phrase. He says, beware, you know, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And it was meant to be a clear warning against unbelief because both the Pharisees and Herod would ask Jesus for a miraculous sign. And Jesus doesn't give them one because they don't believe. And so he goes to warn his disciples about that kind of unbelief. And he says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And do you know how the disciples interpret this warning? It's the very next verse, verse 16. It's on the screen. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. It is because we have no bread. Other than the night that Jesus was betrayed, this had to be the most disappointing moment in the ministry of Jesus with his disciples. Because look at his response to their lack of understanding. Verses 17 to 21. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see? 
or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears and can't hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven, they answered. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Why are you talking about bread? So when Jesus, the very next story, Jesus heals the blind man from Bethsaida. And so when Jesus heals the blind man from Bethsaida and he still can't see, Jesus is in essence saying to his disciples, this is you. This is you. I've done two feeding miracles in your presence. I fed 5,000 people. I fed 4,000 people. And you're still blind enough to think I'm worried about having bread. Guys, this is you. I did a miracle he still can't see. I only did one with him. I've done two with you. You still don't see. These guys were blockheads. They were numbskulls. Again, I realize I'm using Charlie Brown and Bugs Bunny language, but that's what they were. Remember, five of these disciples were from Bethsaida. And I can see Jesus thinking, one blind man from Bethsaida? That's nothing. I've got five that I've been schlepping around for three years. They still don't get it. But here's the amazing thing about God's perspective. God has strangely amazing foresight. Because even in this debacle of a moment, God saw their future, not their failures. Again, I call these guys blockheads and numbskulls. That's what I see. That's not what God sees. In an amazing display of patience, not just in this story, but all throughout the Gospels, just like the blind man, Jesus leads the disciples by the hand. And he shows them not one, but two feeding miracles. And when they still don't get it, he teaches them about the miracles themselves. And when they still don't get it, he gives them an illustration about how they don't understand. He leads them by the hand. And after this illustration, after this blind man was a picture of the disciples, the very next story the blind man from Bethsaida story ends in verse 26. Verse 27 says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, Who do people say that I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you, you are the Christ. You could interpret that as, you are the Messiah, or you are the Savior of the world. Jesus was willing to work with them in their lack of understanding. 
because he had the foresight to see that they would get it. And they got it. Those numbskulls figured it out. They got the truth about Jesus. And God had the amazing foresight to see that they would. Which leads us to a strange question. What is my level of insight? It's a question about self-awareness, sure. A question about faith. Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ. The language we use here at TFRC is, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. What difference does that make? in our lives. Is Jesus my Lord and Savior making any difference in how I see the world, how I view life, how I live life? What is my level of insight? Just as the disciples could follow Jesus for years and see him do miracle after miracle and still be blind, we can follow Jesus for years and still not see the world or life as Jesus does. And there's just two things that I want to remind all of us on. Again, Jesus leads us by the hand and he has amazing patience with us. And I don't know if you've ever had this sense that, you know, I just feel like God's trying to teach me the same lesson over and over and over and over again. And if you ever get that feeling, the most likely explanation is because, yeah, you haven't gotten it yet. <laughs> That's probably why you get the same lesson. And God's patience is amazing. Again, he sees our future, not our failures. So two things I want us to remember as followers of Jesus is that Jesus the Christ has the power to provide. He has the power to provide. In Matthew 4, Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? In Luke 12, Jesus says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Do we see how much our lives are consumed by consuming? Do we see that? You know, God knows that we need food and drink and clothes and a cell phone. We need a cell phone. Uh, we're going to need a car. Uh, flat screen TV is nice. Who wants one of those big old box TVs? That's no good. Can't even give those away anymore. Um, we want coffee. Uh, we need coffee. Good flavored coffee, not that stuff our parents used to drink. That was awful. 
Um, we need to move to a nicer neighborhood. That would be good. Uh, we need to send our kids to college. See, the funny thing about these lists of what we need is, is I begin to lose track of what is a need and what's a want. I, I can't always perceive which is which. I get confused. What do you think is the bigger challenge for God? And again, God can do anything. I get that. But what do you think is harder for God? Providing for our needs or helping us identify what really matters? What do you think is the greater challenge for God? Jesus the Christ has the power to provide. And he wants us to trust that he will provide so that we can focus on what really matters. Because life is more than about food. The body is more than about clothes. The other thing is that Jesus the Christ has the patience to see you through your own blindness. He has the patience to see you through your own blindness, or maybe a better way of saying that is that he has the patience to see us through our blindness. Romans chapter 2 says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? How much do we see God's kindness and patience in our lives. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How much do we see that Jesus is the light of life? Meaning that he shows us what true life looks like, how it's meant to be lived. In John 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. How much do we see that sacrificing our lives is the greatest love and that a life of love is a life of sacrifice? Jesus says in Matthew 23, The more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness, how much do we see that justice and mercy go together? See, we typically think, well, justice and mercy, those are opposites. No, they go together. Think about it. When Jesus died on the cross, was that an act of mercy or an act of justice? If you think about it, you'll see that the answer is both. It's an act of mercy because he died on our behalf. It was an act of justice because death was required as a payment for sin. They go together. So what does justice and mercy look like for all who live in our community? What does that look like? In Matthew 5, Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous and so how much do we see that the path to peace is to love our enemies and that when we forgive our enemies 
it does as much for us as it does for them. 2 Corinthians 5 says, All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. How much do we see that one of our primary roles in life is an ambassador? We are Christ's ambassadors. Everywhere we go, everyone we meet, God is making his appeal through us. We are to show what being reconciled to God looks like. How much do we see that? How much does your faith in Jesus the Christ shape how you see the world? Because the more we see, the more it transforms us. And as we follow the light of life, we become the light of the world. Please pray with me. Lord, again, we thank you for your great patience with us. We thank you how you continue to lead us by the hand. Failure after failure after failure, you continue to see our future. And so, Lord, we ask that we'd be sensitive to your leading, and we ask that you would show us the things in life that we are blind to and to help us live life as Jesus showed us to be lived. And in so doing, that we become more and more the light of the world. All for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.